So I was listening to a sermon online this week, and uh, I heard a pastor named Andy Stanley say something that I thought was kind of provocative. See what you think of this statement. He said, most of the things that people resist about church are things the church should resist. Now think about that for just a second. Most of the things that people who are outside the church resist about church are things that the church should resist too. Would you agree with that? I do. Let me put it this way. You know, I have never heard people say, you know, I don't like Christians because they follow Jesus. That really bugs me about Christians, always talking about Jesus and the gospel and, and love all the time. I mean, I suppose a few people say that, but... But most of the time, what I hear people say is this, I don't like Christians because they're judgmental, because they're legalistic, because they're joyless, because they're mean, because they're superstitious. And I don't know exactly what they mean when they say that, but, but I'll tell you, if all those things are true, we should resist all those things too. In fact, the vast majority of things that people don't like about church, that maybe some of you here today don't like about church, aren't even Christianity. They're what I call churchianity. And they push people away from God instead of bringing people toward God. And did you know that there is an entire book of the Bible about this? Let's talk about it. Pick up your message notes that are in your bulletins that look like this. The logo free, that's what we call our verse-by-verse series in the book of Galatians. Today, let's talk about churchianity versus Christianity. Because since the days of Jesus Christ, people have been confusing those two. And Paul talks about it here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 31. Now, this is one of the most dense and intense parts of the book of Galatians, but it is so important. So kind of get the thinking caps on here because we're going to go deep this morning. Now, we've been in this book a couple of months uh, going through it verse by verse, so let me give you the plot so far. The Galatians were pagans. They were non-Jewish Greek pagans who worshiped gods like Poseidon or Pan or Artemis, and they get led to faith in Christ by the Apostle Paul. They become Jesus followers. They're full of joy. And then disaster strikes. Paul leaves and false teachers from Jerusalem swoop in and say, faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to follow strict religious rules, extra commands from the Bible, uh, circumcision and all the feasts and all the pilgrimages to the temple and all these extra rules that you find in the Hebrew scriptures. And, And the Galatians try real hard to keep this long list of hundreds of rules and rituals, the result, a joyless churchianity instead of a joyful Christianity. So the Apostle Paul writes them a letter, and it's in our Bibles as the letter to the Galatians. This is probably the earliest book ever written that wound up in the New Testament. And it's fascinating because it shows you this struggle for the identity of the faith that was going on even then and has continued for 2,000 years. And Paul is very intense because the future of the Christian message is at stake. And what he's essentially doing in this book is warning the Galatians against becoming religious. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even really exist. 
So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, now press pause, that's a very important distinction, by the way. Your salvation, your spiritual life is grounded not in your search for God. It's grounded in God's search for you. And this is huge because if it depends on your knowledge of God, well, really, how, you, how, can, how can you really be secure about your standing with God? Because what do you know about God? But if it depends on God knowing you, God always knows you. He always loves you. He always knows you perfectly. Then you can relax because God knows you. And the word know in the Bible means more than just intellectual awareness. It means a personal relationship. And so Paul's saying, now that you have a relationship with God, by God's initiative, verse 9, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? Now that you have a relationship, why do you want to go back to religion? Now, I want to stop here because this is one of the most startling passages in the Bible if you really see what Paul means. If you've got your Bibles open or you've got the notes there and you've got a pen or a pencil, I want you to circle the phrase, weak and useless spiritual principles. What's he mean there? In verse 3 of chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the same phrase comes up. Then Paul was referring to the earlier pagan religion of the Galatians. Now, don't miss this, because if you get what he's saying, it will blow your mind, and in fact, it probably will make some of you mad, because it's so radical. He's saying way back when, the Galatians, when they were pagans, they worshiped the elemental forces of the, the world. You know, the pagans worshiped earth, wind, fire, fertility, war, all of these forces which they personified as gods. And so, like, the farmers would sacrifice to the agriculture god. The sailors would sacrifice to the sea god. Businessmen would sacrifice to the goddess of good fortune. All of these elemental forces which they personified as gods, but Paul says here in verse 8, they're not gods, but they, they treated them as gods. And the pagans did this because they thought if they did the right thing for the right god in the right way, then they just might get something from that god. It was a transactional religion, in Latin, a quid pro quo religion. I do this for that, right? That was, that was their religion. That was paganism. And here Paul says, now you're returning to those same weak and useless, stupid principles. Now again, just stop. Do you see what Paul is saying here? This outraged people. He says, you're now returning to the same weak and useless principles as when you were pagans, and you thought your relationship with God depended on whether or not you sacrificed the goats the right way, but were the Galatians returning to paganism? No. What were they doing? They were trying to keep the biblical law to earn favor with God. Do you see how radical this is? Paul is equating at some level the way they are approaching the Bible the law of God in the Bible that came down with Moses from Mount Sinai with pagan religion. That is incredible. He's saying you're approaching the law of God like it's magic. 
like some sort of magical force. What Paul is saying is this. It's possible to treat even good things as idols. Do you agree with that? It's possible to treat even good things as idols. The Bible's good. The Ten Commandments are good. Church is good. Family is good. But it's possible to idolize them, to treat them like pagans treated their own sacrifices, to say, you know, if I read more of the Bible, and if I keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, and if I only go to church more, and if I'm a better husband and a better father, then I'm going to earn some kind of a favor for God. I'm going to get compensation because I did this sacrifice. And that is an essentially pagan way of looking at Christianity. Because in Christianity, your faith is based not on what you do for God to get something from God. It's based on God's knowledge of and love for you that is infinite and unconditional no matter what you did. You didn't do anything to earn it. And Paul is saying, you got that all backwards. You know, when I was a youth pastor in San Diego, there was a young woman there who was a witch, literally. She led a coven in the local high school and she came to faith in Christ in our youth group. Her name was Jaden. And uh, I've told some of you before, Jade had an insight into Christianity that I have never forgotten. I thought it was brilliant. Jade was helping a group of us stack chairs, you know, after, after youth group. And she said, Renee, I just, I feel like I want to tell you something, but, but I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure it, it, it's true. I'm not sure I'm seeing things accurately. I said, what is it, Jade? And she said, well, it seems to me the way that some of these... She goes, now, I'm a new Christian, and I don't understand all this. But she said, it seems to me the, one, the way some of these Christians approach their Christianity, she said, well, it's kind of more like witchcraft than Christianity. I said, what do you mean, Jade? And she said, well, it seems like they think if they pray the right way and they memorize more Bible and they attend church regularly, then they're going to get something from God. She said, now that I'm a Christian... My faith is all about letting God pull my strings. I totally trust God. He loves me. He knows what's best, and I just want to yield myself to him and worship him. She said, when I was practicing witchcraft, it was all about trying to pull the God's strings, trying to see what I could get through incantations and rituals to make the elemental forces go my direction. But she said, that's kind of the mentality that, that some of these Christians have. It's almost more witchcraft than Christianity. And I told Jade, I think you are dead on. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here to the Galatians. You're treating these holy things of God like they've got some kind of magic power. And this has been a problem for 2,000 years in the Christian church. It has masked the true message of Jesus Christ on and off for two millennia. And it does it here in Santa Cruz, too. And so one of the most important questions we can ask is, how does this happen? How does Christianity church change into churchianity? How does a belief in God's grace turn back into pagan magic? Well, I want you to watch this because Paul now describes how Christ plus teachers, these, these false teachers, will try to steal your freedom. This is how they stole the Galatians' freedom, and this is how they will try to steal your freedom freedom in Christ. And you and I really need to hear this because if the Galatian Christians who were taught 
about grace by the apostle Paul could be led astray, then it can happen to you and me too. You're saying, what, what do you mean, Renee? You know, we don't listen to false teachers. We listen to you. Well, how do you know I'm not false, right? First of all, it could happen right here. Secondly, some book you pick up, some YouTube video somebody sends you, some televangelist you see on TV, something you hear on some TV talk show, anything could be teaching this essentially magical pagan view of what the Bible teaches instead of a grace-oriented view of what the Bible teaches. So you have to understand the strategies, okay? Here we go. Paul says, number one, they will teach you that you need special extra techniques. We've talked about this a lot in this series. Paul talks about it in Galatians. Special extra techniques to take you to the next level in your Christianity instead of a simple focus on grace. Here's the way it happened for Galatians. Paul says in verse 10, you are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or, or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. You see what's happening here? Apparently the Galatians were taught that if they didn't keep the feast days and the years of Jubilee and, and the Sabbath and everything else in the Bible, then God wouldn't bless them. It wasn't by God's grace. It was by, if they kept these things, then God would bless them. If they didn't, God wouldn't bless them. Do people still teach this kind of stuff? Absolutely. I was in the airport uh, bookstore the other day, like a week and a half ago, up in Portland, just kind of browsing while I was waiting for my flight to start. It kind of surprised me that in the Portland airport bookstore, of all things, there would be a religious section, but there was. And then it dawned on me, it's probably because people are afraid of flying, you know? <laughs> Don't you think? And they're like, I'm so afraid, of, I'm just going to get a religious book, you know? It's kind of like good luck or something. Could read the Bible, nah, I'll get this religious book. But I was, <laughs> I was looking at this and picked a, up a couple of books and turned it over. The back of the first book I saw had bullet points on the back, and it said this. I'm not exaggerating. Learn how you can heal any one of their diseases anytime you pray for them. Learn God's precise will for everything you do every time. Prophesy the future for your friends and relatives. If you read this, if you buy this book and read my techniques, I'm going to teach you. It wasn't about Jesus. It was about extra techniques that you can learn to enhance your power. Is that Christianity or is that witchcraft? I ask you. Do you see how this 2,000-year-old issue is exactly the same today? I'll say this. this is, I really debated whether or not to share this because I never want to come across as being critical of another church or another pastor, so I won't name the place. But I was visiting a church recently. It was not even in this country where the pastor's message was really great. It was all about grace, like 95%. The topic was law versus grace, and he did a super job talking about all the riches of God's grace until suddenly he takes this left turn, and I'm like, I look at my wife, what did he just say? And I actually jotted it down. He said, and part of God's grace to everyone is he has given us the power to heal all disease and to see into the future for your friends and family. And he says, and if you do not do these things, then you do not know the riches of God's grace. And I question if you're really saved. And what happens is the problem is all these things lead to slavery. And here's how. Because whatever you're trying to do in these technique-oriented systems is never quite enough. 
Because nobody ever gets exactly what they want or exactly what they pray for or exactly what they're seeking for or exactly knows God's guidance every time. And so what you do is you figure, I must not be doing it right. And so you're easy prey to people who come along and say, well, let me teach you some more secret principles. Well, you don't know the real secret methods. And it never ends. It's spiritual slavery. This is why Paul says, I fear for you. And the key phrase here is the phrase, you are trying to earn favor with God. Would you agree with me when I say that most people on the street and even, I would say maybe most people in the pews think that's exactly what Christianity is? Trying to earn favor with God. Try to be good so you can go to heaven. You know? Believe harder, try harder to be good, and then you'll accomplish it. I I found a little video on YouTube that I thought was funny, and to me, it's a metaphor for what religion turns into for a lot of us. Watch this. Hello, friends. I wanted to make this video to hopefully inspire you to do something that you didn't think was possible, um, like I'm going to do with this board here. And what you need to do is to uh, set up something you want to do, make a plan to go through with it, and then, you, what, you, what you have to do is make a plan of action, uh, follow through with it. You've got to believe in yourself. That's first, isn't it? Believe in yourself, formulate a plan of action, and follow through with it. What you have to do is believe in yourself, make a plan of action, and follow through with it. And if you believe you can do something, then you can. Like, I can do with this board. didn't believe in myself enough. I'm going to try again. Apparently, I don't believe in myself as much. Get out of the way. Now, listen to this. Did you hurt yourself? Did you hurt yourself? There's his mother in the background, but... Man, isn't that exactly a lot of people's experience with religion, right? Keep trying harder. Mm. Apparently, I didn't believe hard enough. Only they're not trying to break a board. They're trying to break a habit or a sin. And what you learn is it's not about your strength. We essentially, for our own salvation or or for our own holiness or to overcome some destructive behavior, we are powerless we're, we're, we're in, the, in the trench of self-destructive behavior. It's not about our strength. We can't believe in ourselves enough. It's about God's power. It's about God's strength. And that is the realization the Galatians are slipping from. And then Paul reveals another one of their tactics. Number two is religious zeal. Religious zeal. You know what religious zeal is, right? It sounds like this. Don't you want to be sold out for Jesus? Don't you want to stop being lukewarm and live a radical, devoted life? Don't you want to give your all to God? Well, yes, of course I do. Well, then here's how. Do what I tell you. And Paul nails it. He says, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. Like he points out in the next verse, it's fine to be zealous 
provided the purpose is good. Do you see the distinction he's making here? In other words, the depths of somebody's zeal or commitment means nothing. The intensity of somebody's radical abandonment proves nothing. It proves nothing about whether or not the purpose is good. But again, people get tricked by this. I've heard people say about a nationally known speaker that I believe is mixing works with grace, but he's so passionate. But I, but I love how the things he says are so radical. I, I, he has so much heart, so much spirit. So what? Is he right? Paul says, that's fine to be zealous if it's right. Is he preaching the gospel? Not just as zealous. And then you often see a third strategy, which is alienation from others. Alienation from others. Look at what Paul says. What they want is to alienate you from us. That is exactly how cults and legalists operate. Unhealthy churches operate. They isolate, they silo, they seal off. We're the only true Christians. Don't listen to them. They'll only lead you astray. In logic classes, they call this poisoning the well. You paint somebody else as a demon, so anything they say is discounted. Like Paul says in verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And that's exactly what happens when you try to talk to somebody in a legalistic cult or near cult. If you challenge their beliefs by telling them the truth, you're now the enemy because the well's been poisoned. They've been alienating them from you. And then the final characteristic he talks about is personality-focused ministry. He says they're trying to win you over so you may have zeal for them. You know, what they want to do is build their brand. They want to get more followers. Now, before you flip your page over, I want you to look at all four of these together. Do you see what happens here? You end up with a system that's almost impossible for the followers to see objectively. Because if you object to the leader, then you're seen as being disloyal. And if this is how false teachers kind of create an atmosphere, then what do healthy churches do? Well, the opposite of this, right? I mean, working from the top down, a healthy church doesn't teach endless technique, but keeps focusing on one key, God's grace. A healthy church doesn't separate zeal from truth. A healthy church doesn't isolate and poison the well. It endeavors to be a safe place for people who disagree on issues to come and ask questions and to dialogue. It's not threatened by disagreement. A healthy church is Jesus-focused, not pastor-focused. And you know what? It is a constant battle in every church to be healthy, to be Christian and not churchian, including in this church. But do you see the big picture here? Paul is warning that the biggest danger in church is from religious people, not atheists, not skeptics, not sinners, not secular humanists. Remember them? You know, he's saying it's actually from religious people because they're going to try to rewrite the, the DNA of the church so that when it reproduces, it is mutated into something else, churchianity instead of Christianity. And in the, the, as he wraps up chapter 4, Paul closes with a famous story to illustrate all of this. Now, fair warning, we are now moving into the section that is always considered by commentators the hardest part of Galatians to understand. Now, I don't think this is that obscure. You just need a little historical background. So follow me as we journey back into time a few thousand years to set the stage for Paul's illustration here. If you know the story I'm going to tell you, I think you'll totally get what Paul is saying. Once upon a time, many thousands of years ago, a rich caravan owner who lived in what is now Iraq 
was promised by God that he would have a child and that he would be the father of a great nation. And the man's name was what? Abram. And his wife's name was? Well, years go by, and do they have a baby? No. Nothing happens. Abram remains childless, even though he had this promise from God. And so he literally decides to take matters into his own hands, and he sleeps with his wife's servant girl, Hagar. And Hagar gets pregnant and has a son named Ishmael. Through, listen, through human effort, Abram was trying to achieve God's promise. And then much to everybody's surprise, when Sarah is 90, miraculously, she has a baby too. Talk about your unplanned pregnancies, right? This was a doozy. (laughs) Sarah's got a baby boy named Isaac. So now Abram has two sons. And ever since then, there's been conflict between the two sons and the descendants of the two boys have been fighting for control of the promised land. But Paul is not making a point here about Arab-Israeli conflict. Paul says this story can be taken figuratively to show what happens inside every church family. This is very clever of Paul because apparently these teachers of the Galatians like to make themselves seem credible by saying, hey, listen, we are sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. And so Paul says, fine, I won't argue. I'll grant you, you're sons of Abraham. But which son? And he says this, tell me you who want to live under the law, don't you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from the slave woman, one from the free woman. The son of the slave woman was born, watch this, in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn woman was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration. And again, if you get what he's saying here, this is explosive. He's saying there are two different kinds of people vying for control of every church. And they look very similar. They're brothers. Look at the parallels between Abraham's sons and these two groups in the church. First, one represents seeking salvation by works, the other by grace, right? Ishmael was born as a result of human beings trying to achieve the promise of God through their own effort. And the children of that system, like Hagar's son, are slaves. They're slaves to religion. And so they're dour and they're sour and they're judgmental and negative and preachy. I love a pastor named Steve Brown. He says, they've been given a bottle of miserable pills and told their mission in life is to medicate the world. That's them. <laughs> but the children of the free woman are free. Why? Because there's not, they, were, they were doomed. There's nothing they could do to save themselves. Paul illustrates by quoting an ancient prophecy, Isaiah 54.1. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who never were in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. What's he talking about here? In ancient times, a woman's worth consisted basically in how many children she could bear. Now, this is not something the Bible condoned. In fact, repeatedly the Bible teaches against that view. But let's face it, even today in our modern world, single women or childless women often feel stigmatized. They tell me they, they feel the unspoken implication that somehow they have failed. 
But do you see what this verse says? Because of grace, it doesn't matter what you are or who you are. You may be an outcast. You may feel marginalized as childless women were in those days. You may feel infertile spiritually. You may be in a situation where it's as impossible for you to to save yourself. It's as impossible for you to turn to God as it is for uh, an infertile, unmarried woman to have a child. But what this verse means is God's grace will come through and miraculously make it happen. Paul's saying God's grace is especially for the barren. He's saying anyone can know God through the gospel of grace, regardless of record, regardless of ability, regardless of background. It doesn't matter what you've done or how weak you are or what other people say about you. God saves you by his grace as miraculously as God gave Sarah a child. And that's awesome. And that's why when you get that, you're glad and you shout for joy. Then the second thing he is pointing out here is that one brother resembles the other. They were brothers, and so they looked similar, right? It was maybe hard to tell them apart. Here at TLC, we have this. We've got two pastors on staff who are brothers. Many of you know who I'm talking about, Mark and Paul Spurlock. They aren't twins, but a lot of people assume they are. They both have red hair. They both have freckles. They're both about the same height, same build. In fact, some people think they are actually the same person. It's actually true. Very famously, uh, one time about 20 years ago, our previous pastor, Roy Kraft, was introducing Paul Spurlock at an event, and in his mind, just for a second, he conflated the two brothers. And his, in his introduction, he, he added both all their achievements together. He said, here's a young man who went to Biola and Cal Poly <laughs> and directs Camp Hammer and is a youth pastor in Los Angeles. How does he do all that? He was completely confused for a minute. And in the church, the churchians and the Christians, the two brothers look similar. In fact, they look almost exactly the same. They both quote the same scripture. They both use similar language. They both maybe sit in the same pews, sing the same songs. I mean, there's so many ways. That similarity extends even to church names. You know, I had a good friend who was at a great church in Tahoe called Bread of Life. But there was also a notorious cult that went belly up in the 90s called Bread of Life. You know, there's great churches called Church of Christ, and there's cults called Church of Christ. I don't know why we think that all weird churches are going to have names like the Community of Nuts, you know, or (laughs) Our Lady of Perpetual Shame and Manipulation or something like that. But Paul's saying you got to look beneath the surface and see what the brothers are actually teaching. Second, Paul, or third, he wraps up his point with this, and this is intense. One persecutes the other. He says, at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, and it's the same now. Do you see the astounding thing here? He's not saying the world will try to destroy the church. That's, of course, true from time to time. But he's saying the real danger is the virus of churchianity that will creep in and try to change the DNA from grace to performance. And he says this has always been the case. Think of it. Who are the people really against Jesus? The people found him fascinating. The Romans didn't really care until like the last day. No, what happened was the religious leaders who had a stake in the corrupted temple system of the time wanted him gone. Why? He was preaching an easy yoke. He was preaching freedom for the captives. He was welcoming prostitutes and sinners. And so the children of slavery tried to silence the son of freedom. And that happens to this day. 
there's hardly a more important question you can ask than, so what do we do about that? Because the future of your joy and the future of the reputation of this gathering of believers and honestly, the future of Christianity depends on on, on what we do in response to that. What do we do? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. But first, I want to address three groups because some of you are saying, I wish this had been a more practical rather than theological message, frankly, Renee, because I need help with my marriage. I need help raising my teenager. I need help climbing out of my depression. And the Bible has practical verses for all of that, and Galatians gets there. But do you see how grace is the foundation of all of that? When you understand grace, when you understand you were barren, but God made you fertile through no power of your own, when you get that, grace gives you the framework to see every person and every problem in a completely new light that empowers you. And if you don't understand that grace is the foundation, then all you'll do to try to solve your problems is learn endless how-to principles with no coherent Christian framework. Second group, some of you are going, but, but, but if we let go of churchianity, what will keep people from sinning? Renee, don't we have to be holy? Yes, be holy as God is holy. But Paul's point is not that we don't have to be holy. Paul's point is churchianity doesn't work to make you holy. So what does work? You'll have to come back next week for that. (laughs) But some of you are thinking, well, a third group is thinking, well, if this is all true, then what use is there for the Old Testament law? Are you saying we should just throw away the Old Testament? No. And that's why I put some Galatians extras. Uh, Down at the bottom of your notes, you'll see the URL you can go to. It's a little 16-minute Bible study that I did with a PDF of a bunch of verses that you can download. What use is the Old Testament law for us today? That is a great question. And we don't have time to get into it this morning, so if you want to download it, maybe go through it with your own small group, you can do that. But let let me just say this. The bottom line is this. You and I need to guard our freedom and do not let people lead you away from God's grace. And how do you do that? We've said it before. The greatest thing you can do is to keep preaching the gospel to yourself. I'll end with this. A couple of weeks ago, we set up a camera and said, whoever wants to, come by and tell us your faith story. And I was so happy to see that so many of them had to do with grace. Here's just a couple. Watch this. When I was doing this, the uh, series on Abba, Father, and uh, he shares his story with about his passing of his dad and stepdad and stuff like that. And I was also having to be the first first part of the month, first month, the visitors center, the communion, the whole bit. Right. I came into the visitor center to meet with him, and he says, "Hi, how are you doing?" Uh, I looked up at him, big red eyes, swollen from crying because I was crying on the way over to church because I was missing my dad, who I did not know. And I looked up at him and I said, I was five and my sister was three. And he knew exact. I knew instantly that he knew exactly what I was talking about. I think I've been looking for the wrong father all my life. I think the most important thing that God has shown me through Twin Lakes 
is um, the deep understanding of his grace. And I feel like in today's society, we can feel like we have to win approval from a friend or a coworker or even God. Um, so I feel like once we have that deep understanding of what God's grace is, not just know it, but have that deep understanding of it, the overwhelming peace that takes over our life is just amazing. And there's no winning or losing in God's grace. It's given to us regardless of our past or our mistakes or our story. So I feel like that's probably, it is, the most amazing gift that we could ever receive. And knowing that we have that um, without having to do a thing is the most amazing thing. And that's what God has shown me through Twin Lakes. And I hope that God has shown you that too. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray that we would be a church of Christianity, Christ followers who are turning into Christ's image, not churchianity, people just trying harder to break the board. Let us focus on the grace of God, all our debts fully paid on the cross by Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And I pray that if anybody here today yet needs to receive your grace, they would realize they don't have to be worthy. In fact, the point is that we're not worthy. That right now they'd say, Father in heaven, I receive your free gift of lavish grace made available by the sacrifice once for all of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And may we continue to be a church of overflowing grace. In your name we pray, amen.